Hello, and welcome to Osmond Clark's Energy Innovation Podcast. My name is Hugo Libetta, and I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel Glaving from EDF Energy to chat all things nuclear. Rachel is currently the Commercial Director of EDF's nuclear operations business. Rachel, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Hugo. Great to be here. So let's jump straight into it. We're here to talk about the changing role of nuclear, particularly in the context of the transition to a net zero energy system. And nuclear has, for the past 60 years or so, been the reliable baseload power generator, quietly performing its role in the background. It has never really sought the limelight, until relatively recently at least, uh, and hasn't done much to positively articulate its role in the energy system. You could say the nuclear industry has been very good at talking to itself, but traditionally has been quite nervous engaging the outside world. But nuclear now seems to be enjoying something of a renaissance, in particular with securing notable backing from Silicon Valley billionaires like Bill Gates. Why is this? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good assessment of where the nuclear industry actually has been, um, because you're right. I think as a as an industry, we've probably been in the shadows and are just emerging into the sun for our time to shine, let's say. And I, I think it's for a number of reasons. I, I think, honestly, the public debate around nuclear is more open now than it ever has been. And there are you know, some great examples of nuclear popping up in popular culture now and um you know even the Oppenheimer movie you know and Oliver Stone's nuclear now movie um there's some some really good examples all around the world actually of nuclear stepping in to the the limelight a little bit and that you know the positive of that is that you end up with a real public debate around a topic rather than a whole load of assumptions um and unsaid truths so I think that for me is you know one one reason, but but the why is it why has it attracted uh, in particular you know funding and interest you know from from some notable people around the world and state backing of course in many cases I think it's probably because there are two big questions important questions at the moment that nuclear provides quite a compelling response to. So the first one is about energy security you know and the the um focus over the last couple of years by many countries and states about you know how do you how do we make sure we have a secure energy system in the face of you know shortages of gas you know the the, the war in ukraine really focusing attention on how able are we to be a sovereign independent state when it comes to our energy production and use. So I think the energy security question is an important one and one where nuclear, you know, the fact that nuclear provides such large amounts of power, always on, reliably generating, you know, it's a good answer. So it's not the full answer, but it's a good answer to the question of energy security. And yeah, then I think you... sorry. sorry, carry on, carry on. No, and then I I think that the second part of that is about decarbonisation and you know accelerating this transition that we're going to have towards uh, a low carbon future and that's you know similarly nuclear has always been and will continue to be you know an incredibly reliable form of low carbon generation and and as different countries and states as they kind of become more clear about their climate 
ambitions, targets, agendas. I think there's this realization that the what nuclear provides to that is for the most part an accelerated transition towards a low carbon energy system and it, it can do that in a way that also brings low costs to the consumer with it and that's why we've seen countries like Sweden, Poland, even France to a certain extent you know have this kind of change of heart around the direction that they were going in in new nuclear yeah, that's really interesting. I'd like to come back to that decarbonisation area, but before I do, you say some very interesting things about the wider context, um, mm-hmm. particularly the public awareness side, perhaps even public acceptance now, you know, with, with as you say, the Oppenheimer movie, the Oliver Stone movie. You're also talking about the wider energy security issues mm-hmm. with the war in Ukraine, energy security, etc. I just wanted to ask you how the government has responded to that, because there's been a new a nuclear delivery body recently, hasn't there? And I think nuclear's had a more prominent role in the energy security strategy as well. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> I think the um think the response that the UK government has, first of all, I would say is is quite in line with the response that many governments have had to this. But if we look just at the UK picture, the response has been actually to come out quite strong with a energy security strategy and one that puts, you know, nuclear new nuclear development um, at the heart of the uh, decarbonised energy system. So what we've got is um, a 24 gigawatts ambition. quarter of all power will be generated from nuclear. So it's a big ambition, certainly more, um, you know, it's it's double where we are right now. Um, And so a large target obviously requires a huge amount of investment and commitment and a big program to get there. Um, And in order to help that along, the government has also established this uh, body, Great British Nuclear. Yeah, that's really interesting. And as you say, that 24 gigawatt number is a very large number in itself. And it's it's probably important to say it's not just adding to what's here. It's largely replacing everything that's here, isn't it? So that that is pretty much all new capacity, isn't it? Or it's almost all new capacity. It is. It's it's essentially uh, all new capacity other than one existing nuclear power station that we have. So today in the UK, we have eight nuclear power stations, seven of which um, will be closed by the end of this decade. And at that point, we'll be left with one. Um, and then what you add to that is any new build. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you mentioned Great British Nuclear. It's obviously early days for that. So yeah. it may be that we we come back and, and see how that's getting on in, in a few months time. Definitely, because um, that's the question is, you know, what, what we need to know is you need clarity on what does this programme look like? What are we? We've got the target. The next step is how are we going to get there? What are the priorities? What sites? What technologies? And what is the role of Great British Nuclear in supporting that? And and you're right, you know, that that's to be um, clarified, but we're, we're all waiting to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Um, you mentioned that nuclear can play a role in the decarbonisation agenda, and I thought I'd like to come back to that. And presumably by that, you meant nuclear as a complement to perhaps the more obvious decarbonisation options, you know, renewable power, wind and solar, the backbone mm-hmm. of a future energy system. Could you just tell me a little more about how nuclear can fit into that? Yeah, I suppose there's there, there's two things for me. There's, first of all, nuclear generation itself is low carbon. So having nuclear 
generation is part of the solution to a low carbon energy system. So putting it in context, you know, those eight nuclear power stations that I mentioned earlier, they've operated for the last four decades. They've produced more than 2000 terawatts, terawatts, um, terawatt hours of power. So that's a lot. So it's like 700 million tonnes, I think, of carbon avoided. So starting with the existing technology and what are we doing? You know, already making quite a big dent. But I suppose the the debate at the moment is often around what are the other roles that nuclear can play in decarbonisation too. And that's where it actually gets quite interesting because um, using nuclear steam to drive turbines to produce power is one method but you can actually use that steam that you produce anyway as part of a nuclear um, reactor you can use that steam for other things and there's some really interesting examples not just in the uk and not just by us but but around the world as well of projects that are trying to demonstrate alternative uses for this nuclear produced heat and steam and I suppose to give two real examples of that, um, there's one project um, that we have up at our site in Hartlepool in the northeast of England, um, where the idea is you could produce heat um, in an area where you've got a really high industrial um, demand around it, you know, for, for really high intensity heat processes they include things like chemical production steelworks things like that these are industries that that are going to be the hardest to decarbonize that's a sector we just don't have an answer today a clear answer about how we're going to decarbonize these um these in industries and so the idea is you know well what about if you actually took heat instead of producing power uh, perhaps you could take heat from the nuclear reactors and use that to supply these industries and actually therefore decarbonize what are today fossil um, generation sources of heat. So that's that's one kind of um, new uh, and exciting uh, application, I suppose, for nuclear reactors that that um, is really being explored a lot at the moment. And then the second one is this idea of, well, you could use that heat directly for industry. But what about if you actually took it and used it to produce things like hydrogen, ammonia, um, you know, eventually e-fuels and, and, and things like that. And, and the idea there is um, if you produce, if you want to produce hydrogen and you want to produce it at scale, tying that hydrogen production to a nuclear source of always on you know, baseload heat, high quality um, heat and steam. If you heat assist the process of producing hydrogen, you can do it much more efficiently, which means much cheaper uh, and then much higher volume, which again makes it cheaper. So this this new area of, well, actually, what about producing hydrogen from nuclear is a Im really important topic today and one that we're um, we've got some government funding to demonstrate that at another of our power stations on the west coast, northwest coast of England at Hesham. That's really exciting, isn't it? So this is this is pink hydrogen, isn't it? The latest uh, yeah, addition on the, on to the, the rainbow. rainbow. <laughs> yes, yes. I guess strictly speaking, it's it's pink. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
That's really interesting because a traditional criticism of nuclear is it's been a, you know, it's a, it has a baseload operating profile. It's hugely inflexible uh, from a dispatch perspective. As you say, it's always on, it's always there. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing periods of, you know, very high wind output, you know, over oversupply into the system, very low prices, negative prices. So it's interesting to hear you talk a little bit about how nuclear can actually offer part of a solution to that. And it sounds like it, there are alternatives to just dispatching irrespective of grid need. Uh, and you're talking about heat and the potential application to hydrogen as well. So are those opportunities and others like them actively being designed into the use case, if you like, for new build nuclear? Yeah. Is, that a, is that a serious function of new nuclear or is it a, a marketing add-on, if you like? Yeah, no, I I think it genuinely is. I think, you know, in, in reality, um, creating a kind of pseudo flexibility from nuclear by diverting some of the steam to a different use whatever that different use is 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 not a realistic prospect at scale for the existing nuclear fleet and that's that's the kind of area i suppose these so-called next generation of nuclear reactors uh, we refer to them as advanced modular reactors in particular. You know, some of those technologies are really stepping into this flexibility space because that is what they're aiming for. And they're aiming to do it in a way that's incredibly flexible. So so for me, I think it is a potential part of the use case in the future. I don't think we're there at the moment. And then you bring in this market question about, well, the other side to that is nuclear power, you know, once you've built a nuclear power station, the marginal cost of generating is really low. You know, so at that point, you actually want to be producing power all the time. So what are the market signals going to be that actually move you into those negative pricing scenarios? And you could imagine, you know, the debate is going on at the moment about the, um, you know, the review of the market arrangements and whether that will end up being locational pricing or national pricing you know depending on what way that goes i think will drive whether or not we find ourselves with perhaps locations where negative pricing is a reality you know or 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 not and that, and i don't know the role of nuclear therefore gets driven by the market arrangements as opposed to let's see how flexible we can make nuclear Yes, uh, th that all makes sense. And I suppose, as, as you're saying, you can articulate what nuclear can offer almost irrespective yeah. of the precise market to uh, yeah. design. And actually, it really doesn't matter too much what the outcome of REMA and future markets are because various use cases are available. Yeah. So fasc fascinating areas to, to talk about further. But this wouldn't be a decent conversation about nuclear unless we turned to face some of the elephants in the nuclear room. Yeah. First of both is cost. You mentioned a minute ago marginal cost of nuclear in the context of, of pricing, but what about the actual cost of nuclear? Well, well yeah. first of all, perhaps if we talk about um, programs, experiences showing us that nuclear projects are expensive um, and take a long time to deliver. I'm thinking particularly of you know the, the, the well-cited cases of Flormanville in France, uh, Okligoto in Finland, Hinkley Point in Somerset, much closer to us. The obvious answer is in light of that, why don't we just build more renewables to meet net zero? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's exactly the right question. There's a few things to say, I suppose. First of all, you know, nuclear is expensive. It costs a huge amount of money to build a new nuclear power station, and especially, 
um, at some of the scales that are being uh, constructed at the moment. So taking Flamelville, um, Hinkley Point C, Okiloto, you know, these are these are essentially power stations that in the old days would have been three separate power stations. You know, so even the scale in nuclear terms is even bigger for these power stations. So absolutely, they cost a fortune, incredibly difficult, therefore, to finance. That's why you end up seeing, you know, who who are those that actually can um, bankroll projects like this? It's essentially states, isn't it? That's what it comes down to: is is states and state-run organ state-run organisations. Um, so that that's the the first point is absolutely they're expensive. Now the the second point I suppose is they are hundred-year endeavours. You know, you you have an incredibly high initial cost. And then you end up with you know, a, a, a length of operation well beyond, you know, the operation of any renewables at all. So, of course, what you get is an absolutely massive initial capital investment, but a really long payback period. You know, there's a perception point, isn't there, about just how much you're having to pay up up front. And then I suppose the other thing I'd say is, you know, we're in this situation where new nuclear development at the moment almost around the world without exception is a whole series of first of a kind power stations you know so we we got the one in France at Flamanville first of a kind you know you've then got the transfer of that design into the UK which then has to be changed which results therefore in a new design first of a kind you know, these first of a kind mega projects end up having to, as part of their project, um, create their resourcing pipelines, you know, find the the 10,000 people a day that are going to be on site at the construction site. You know, there's such huge undertakings that it's incredibly difficult to do it for the first time. Um, and it's only actually when you repeat it, you start getting real economies of scale um, cost savings, knowledge, you know, within the workforce of what, what they're doing now. And so therefore the ability to do it better or higher quality. And I suppose the parallel I would draw with that is the experience that we've got of the AGR fleet. You know, our fleet in the UK, the very first power station to be, to, to start construction um, was Dungeness. Uh, in Kent, you know, and it bankrupt essentially the company that was that that was building it. It was so over budget, so over cost. Um, it was the first to begin construction, but it was the third to begin operation. It took so long, and it was it was a it was a nightmare. And then, you know, the last in that fleet, uh, you know, seven power stations later, ended up being delivered on time and on budget. You know, and and that's that's what happens when you repeat things and you do them. So. No excuses, but, you know, an, an offering of an explanation as to why you need a, a programme to get the best efficiencies. Yeah. yeah so, so how has the government reacted to that criticism or how has EDF reacted to that criticism? Because if you just looked back a year or two, you know, EDF yeah. was developing Hinkley Point C, the Horizon project was developing its own technology yeah. type, its own reactor type. The new gen project was doing the same. Yeah. Are, are, are we just destined to be in this spiraling vortex of, you know, endless first of the kind projects? 
it's difficult, isn't it? It's it's really difficult because if we are, um, you know, that's going to do nothing, I think, to persuade ourselves and others that we actually can deliver these projects on time and at cost. It just will not help the debate at all. The, the other side of the argument is, yes, but you'll get more diversification of technologies. You're not reliant on one technology um, only. And, and so, you know, it's not a straightforward argument. But if you want cost certainty, schedule certainty and the ability to do things better and predictably better, you have to do do it multiple times. Um, and I guess the jury is out, isn't it, in, in the UK? I'd say Sizewell C, you know, obviously the, the intention with Sizewell C is that it will be a direct replica of HPC and a huge amount of effort is going into working out how do you maximise the replication of knowledge, effort, processes, you know, everything so that you maximise the, the learning and predictability of that project. Um, you know, what comes beyond, who knows, you know, the government has talked about potential for another large scale nuclear project. You know, we'll see. Uh, but certainly the more you replicate something, the, the more you know how much it's going to cost. And for these large projects that cost a fortune, that's a good thing. Agreed. And as I understand it, the government are also looking at a different funding model for size yes. C. So you, you address, as you say, supply chain replication to the extent possible, technology yeah. replication to the extent possible, but yeah. actually zero in on that primary challenge about cost and the cost of capital that the National Audit Office, amongst others, yeah. you know, were so quick to criticise in the aftermath of the, the Hinkley Point C CFD. Yeah. Right it's it's fascinating, don't you think, that that CFD, um, you know, the, the contract for difference that Hinkley Point C has, has a strike price of, what is it, £92, something like um, 50, yep. something, yeah, <laughs> you know, £92.50. And, you know, the, the public debate at that time, which wasn't really that long ago in reality, was, you know, absolutely shocking. You know, this is such a high strike price. And, and now where we are you know actually it looks like already you know much better value for money than we could have imagined back then so there's this you know when you have things that happen on a really long time continuum uh, and with large sums of money it, it's it becomes more about perception doesn't it and sometimes yeah, that's, that's an interesting comment. And I suppose whenever you see the Hinkley CFD strike price discussed, it's generally in the context of the latest offshore wind round. Yeah. So you have, as you as you very well characterised, a long-term infrastructure uh, play yeah. with shorter-term um, exactly. generation needs. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting comment that you've got to see the different system benefit each of these yeah. technology brings. And of course, the great thing about the debate about nuclear now isn't it's technology A versus B. It's about how to bring forward these different technologies together, you know, the interoperability of the of, of the different um, technologies within a power system. Yeah, for me, that has been one of the real positive changes, I think, in, in recent times is I, I really don't believe that that we are trapped by this debate of is it renewables or is it uh, nuclear, you know, or is it gas, you know, with carbon capture. I, I just think, you know, we, we've stepped beyond that now into what is the best mix? And I think there's been so much um, compelling evidence really about recently about 
the commercial benefits that there are to consumers of having some nuclear about how you wouldn't want too much nuclear, but how you know a baseload of nuclear supports a huge increase in renewables beyond that that would be possible without. And so there's this, the dialogue at the moment seems to be about what's the best mix and rather than is it this technology or is it that technology? And that's, you know, it's been helped, hasn't it, by this push for energy independence and sovereignty that we've seen just recently. I agree. It's been a very helpful development, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, but one, let's let's descend a level further into the the, the tricky nuclear debate um, <laughs> and and pick up something that those renewable technologies don't have associated with them at the end, which which comes about at the end of their life. So yes, obviously there are quite serious recycling challenges uh, at the end of life of wind turbines mm-hmm. and indeed with batteries uh, and indeed PV panels, but none of them come close to the uh, very emotive, I guess, at times, debates that the nuclear industry has uh, with the outside world about the, the legacy of nuclear waste. Yeah. Um, there are certain people that just can't get past that issue, I think, in, in, in a discussion around where nuclear fits in. What, what would you say to them? Yeah, I suppose, first of all, I'd say um, th- this is always the heart of the debate, and I think it's actually right um in the past there's always been this view that there's a third a third and a third is is the public view around nuclear a third like it a third don't like it and a third kind of have no no view and when you ask the third why they don't like it often the topic of waste is cited as the you know the the number one reason um it's also a, a topic that you know, our time in the shadows as an industry has meant that we've not really talked about it that much. And it's it's good to talk openly about it because, you know, there is a byproduct of nuclear power generation, which is radiated waste. And, you know, I suppose I'd say it's small in volume is the, the first thing, um, you know, a whole lifetime's worth of uh, waste generated um, for a single person would fit in a Coke can. Um, But there is waste, nevertheless. Um, But actually, there's this really interesting discourse at the moment about calling it waste is is a bit of a distraction. It's actually spent fuel. And by its nature, it isn't actually a waste product that just has to be got rid of or stored. It can actually potentially be recycled. Um, And that's a real interesting prospect. So you've got the question of, you know, is there an ambition and a drive to to use that spent fuel for an alternative use? And if there are, if there is, um, you know, there are some of the new reactor designs, the so-called closed fuel cycle designs, the generation for um, reactors, as we call them. These are these are new technologies that actually would take that as their input fuel. So, you know, that that for me goes a long way to starting to answer the question about nuclear waste. The second thing I think where we do get tied up in circles a little bit is that, you know, no one has ever been harmed by nuclear waste. But I completely get the emotive angle, which is it's got to be stored carefully and for a very long time. And that's that's true. 
Um, and that's why I suppose as an industry, you know, there's a huge amount of effort going into knowing exactly where every gram of nuclear waste there is uh, and ever has been produced and accounting for it and understanding it. And it's the only industry, you know, where we really do that. So, you know, there's a there's a sort of reassurance, I suppose, that this isn't a waste product that's just uh, all around us. It's very carefully controlled. But the idea that this waste product could become a fuel of the future for some reactor designs, um, for me, is is a positive angle in the debate. But, you know, there will always be some people that can't get past that point. And, you know, that's also fine. Um, but for me, this is a question of benefit, you know, versus cost versus risk. That's interesting because I, I guess what you're suggesting is there's a big perception gap there. Certainly yeah. with a lot of people, when you talk about waste, I suppose they think of Homer Simpson, <laughs> they think of Sellafield, they think of the, you know, the nightmares at Sellafield of just dropping waste, yeah. you know, down towers in rooms, locking it and uh, walking away and hoping for the best. And then the conversation after that for a long time was fixated on the geographic disposal facility, wasn't it? Essentially yeah. just locking right. it up underground, if I can sort of catch mischaracterize it and, and, yeah. and forgetting about it but your what you said is is interesting because you're saying there's there's different angles in that debate now so first off yeah. it's scale it's you know the, the waste associated with one individual is a coke can over their lifetime it's mm -hmm. it's sort of manageable in scale uh, and even better you know the, the point you made about potentially this has a role as an alternative fuel it can the waste can be taken and a positive benefit derived uh, from it and I suppose we're also seeing this sort of strange hugger canister phenomenon. People going oh, yeah. to Sizewell B dry store and li literally hugging the, yes. the the canister. So in the kind of you know in the cycle of hugger hoodie, hugger husky now hugger a, a waste canister to show how safe it is. Yeah. Um, so the the debate there is clearly clearly moving on, uh, which which I think is a good thing for for all concerned, obviously. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I suppose we're all looking forward to those projects coming forward fast enough to for uh, to them to be yeah. harnessed and delivered. Um, great. Well, Rachel, thank you very much. Uh, that was, as ever, a, a fascinating conversation. I look forward to continuing it with you. Uh, as you say, this is a key time for nuclear, having Sizewell see it a very sensitive pre-FID phase, um, the launch of Great British Nuclear, the ambitious targets in the energy security strategy and the excitement that obviously surrounds the role of SMRs and AMRs and the potential they can play uh, in complementing a, a renewables-led energy system. Uh, as, you, as you were saying, it all offers fantastic opportunities for the sector and the supply chain. Um, and as I mentioned, it'll be fascinating to watch how things develop from here. So all the best to you and the EDF team and speak soon. Thanks so much, Hugo. That's great. All the best. Thanks, Rachel. Bye-bye.